You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Here are your hosts, Jay Fennell and Paul Wilkinson. Welcome, leaders, to the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leader Podcast. Um, Jay is not with us today. He's out conferencing for the week, so you'll hear a familiar voice, the one that introduces it each week, Roger Severino. Say hello, Roger. Hello, Life Group leaders. Great to be with you. Wonderful voice. Um, Roger is a part of the adult discipleship team, deals a lot with the gender-based ministry, with leadership development, the TNT program, and any number of sort of things. Um, Big hand in the curriculum and leads out in the curriculum, so if you have issues with that, fight him. Don't fight me on that. And I'm really thankful to have Roger, very important to me, one of the first people I met here, actually the second minister I talked to here and put me on a good track teaching focus groups, uh, protected me from ruining life group leaders when I was very immature in my uh, discipleship development, but it certainly allowed me to use my gifts of theology and philosophy and has walked me along over the last couple years, so I'm really excited to be here with him and I appreciate him and what he does for our church. Uh, the best practice I want to run through this week quickly is transparent spaces. Uh, this is a very significant idea about, again, with holistic discipleship, we need to be uh, discipling people in each of these spaces, not just one or the other. So not just corporate worship, not just general life group with groups of 20 or 30 or even 15, but we need to be hitting divine space one-on-one with the Spirit, and we also need to be in groups of three or four, where there's really high accountability, uh, walking through life with people, confessing sin with one another, and so forth. So the question then is, if we spend the bulk of our time in corporate worship or groups of 20 or 30, how do we as life group leaders provide the space for the two- to four-person group or two- to six-person group? So there's multiple ways to do it. One would be to incorporate some creative um, aspects of traditional things we do. So prayer requests, for instance, maybe instead of doing a full-blown prayer request time where everybody just shares openly, split people into smaller groups and rotate those groups maybe every quarter and and have people build a relationship that way within groups of three or four within the larger group. Uh, You can launch things like Bible reading groups, which you can find out more about through uh, contacting me or, or Jay or even Roger that will afford this kind of transparent space where a group of three or four out of your group, maybe even six, can get together, read the Bible, go through a series of questions about uh, what the text is saying, about how God's working in their life, and prayer for one another moving forward. So the point is to say, if we're going to be holistic in our discipleship and make people who are such that the words and deeds of Jesus naturally flow out of them, we need to pay attention to each of these spaces. So I encourage you to look for ways to incorporate small, small group, so smaller group maybe, two to six people within the larger context of your life groups. So with that said, let's dive into our text for today. We're going to talk about biblical anthropology, or easier said, uh, what's the biblical view of humanity? And I'm going to let Roger kick us off with walking through some of the biblical text. Thanks, Paul. What a joy to be with you guys, and certainly appreciate Paul coming on board with us and bringing all the many gifts and experiences that he has to help us in our work around here, so uh, delighted to, to uh, be a um, co-laborer with him. Um, our main passage, our focal passage for this week is Psalm 139, just an incredible psalm praising God, uh, not only for who he is and his omniscience, meaning he knows all things and he is um, everywhere, he's omnipresent, um, 
but also it speaks to our humanity, what it means to be human. And it's, and it's a, a beautiful psalm talking about, among other things, how we are remarkably and wonderfully made uh, image bearers of God. Um, our memory verse, uh, which you may, I would encourage you to uh, perhaps not only look at, but even look at, at uh, Genesis one twenty six through the end of Genesis 1 to really maybe supplement the Psalm 139 uh, this week as, uh, as Dr. Didway does in the, in the study uh, about what it means to be image bearers of God and also uh, our purpose in humanity too. And we'll maybe talk about that just, just for a moment. But let's, let's look at Psalm 139. Of course, um, it talks about how uh, we are known by God and that God has encircled us and placed his hand on us. And wherever we go, we cannot hide from his spirit and he is always with us. And and all of our days of our lives are numbered by God. He knows us intimately, even in the womb. He's He's known us. And so uh, Dr. Didway also um, talks about sanctity of life issues related to that in, in, in our lesson. But, you know, one question may come up is, you know, is that good to be known that intimately? We know God is holy. We know that he is loving. And I think for the most part, what the psalmist says is it is good when we are in right relationship with God. Now, we can talk a little bit more what that means to be in right relationship with God. Of course, next week will be salvation about what makes us right with God, what puts us in right standing before a holy God. And obviously we know as believers in Christ that it is through his finished work on the cross that we are in right standing and, and uh, reconciled to a holy God. But Psalm 139 celebrates that we are uh, that we have this intimacy with God and that we are fearfully, wonderfully made. I want to contrast that for just a moment with, with maybe our culture and what we hear. I think we simultaneously hear that maybe a too low view of humanity as well as a too high view of humanity, maybe in, in contrast to the biblical view. So what do I mean by that? By too low, I mean you would hear things like we're accidents in the universe, we're just a bunch of chemicals that came together, and really there's no inherent uh, sanctity of life or even value of life that would exceed any of the other animal kingdom. Maybe you know people are worth no more than a, than a cockroach or, or some other animal. And that's really not a biblical view. We, we are distinct from the animal kingdom in the sense that we have this unique relationship with God as, as his image bearers. Uh, on the other side of the coin, we also hear almost too, too lofty or too high a view of humanity, meaning that we are the highest um, uh, beings in the universe and that uh, we are have taken the place of God. And so um, we know scripturally that that is an incorrect view, that we are uh, we need, must embrace our creatureliness and as well that, that we are made to uh, worship and to honor God, to love Him, be loved by Him, first of all. Because uh, we only love, we know, when, when, when we first receive God's love, it initiates towards us. Uh, so those are some of the things that, that I, I got out of, the, um, out, out of this psalm and some of the things. And so, Paul, give, give me some of your reflections on, on some of these uh, aspects of humanity and, or anything from the text. Yeah, I just want to comment on what you just said about the too high, too low. I think that's great stuff. Because when we're too low and we're just cosmic accidents, you wonder what's the basis for morality, what's the basis for purpose in the universe anymore, if there is no God and immortality and an eternal cosmic judge saying that this is right and this is wrong and there will be paid wages out for it at some point, even if it doesn't happen during this temporal life, then I just, you really lose significance. You really lose value. 
um, in, in meaning in the world. And on the other side, you were right to say, if you think too highly, then you get morality going opposite direction where morality and what's good becomes just merely the subjective experience of the individual. So whoever is in power, if it's a society, community or whatever, uh, their, their joint wisdom or lack thereof become the standards by which everything is judged good, bad or otherwise. So on, on this theological truth about our value and relationship to God has manifest implications for the way we live morally uh, in our world, in our communities. Yeah. Good stuff there. Um, and if you, in your text uh, for, for this week on page 76, uh, Dr. Didway unpacks what he thinks uh, is a good definition for the image of God, which I would encourage you to read that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually defer here to Paul in just a second to, to kind of unpack what the imago dei, what the image of God is in our lives. And before I turn it back over to Paul, uh, let me just bring up one one thing. This chapter primarily highlights on that positive aspect that we um, have dignity, that we are remarkably and wonderfully made. But we know if, if we look at the whole storyline of the Bible, there, there's another side of the coin too, and that is that is human depravity. So dignity and depravity, and which really helps sets us up for uh, next week uh, of, of the chapter on salvation, why we need a savior. Uh, because the sin has separated us from a holy God. Uh, so I'd encourage you, even though this week uh, this primarily bringing out the, the aspect of our, our dignity and our values, human beings, and certainly that's the biblical uh, case and, and the biblical truth, but we also know uh, holistically in Scripture that there's that other side too of depravity, and that will be a good uh, segue even to our, our, our uh, the lesson next week, should you go beyond these seven weeks into the eighth week and uh, the message on salvation. Uh, Paul, so so tell us, unpack some of these things about what it means to be human. Tell us a little bit about even that term that I use, the image bearers. Give, give us some thoughts on that. Yeah, there's been a lot of definitions throughout history. Some would point to the mere rationality, the way we can relate to God in reason, as opposed to maybe an animal that just reacts to environmental effects or what have you. I think what the Bible is getting at more than anything is is that we carry a reflection um, in in us of, of who God is and in God's great work. So I, I like to think of it more as um, I, maybe not a mirror per se, but um, Mike Breen uses the term indentation and he uses the image of a memory foam mattress where you push your hand on it and the, the image stays there for a minute and that can be filled up in theory with your hand, with the likeness of it, your hand could go right back in it. So it's something like that for us so that who we are, uh, what we can do, the way we can relate, have community uh, in the ways that we do it are in a reflection then of the Godhead and the way Godhead has that same community, uh, same capacity for love, etc. Let me ask a follow-up to that. Um, we know Genesis 1 talks about us being image bearers of God. Um, how about once sin enters into the world? Is the image of God obliterated by, by our sinfulness? Yeah, I think, and I think this is a good point to make. And Roger was just getting to that. You were getting to that with the idea of contrasting that we were made good. The essential part of us, the necessary part of us, is that we were made to be reflectors of the divine glory. However, we have marred that to this point. And now, as sin is pervasive, in throughout the entire universe, the whole universe groans under the weight of the sin uh, due to Adam's, Adam's federal headship and sinning for us, that now we have marred that image. We don't reflect it properly. There's instances of it, what the Bible would um, 
hint at common grace, so it rains on the just and the unjust alike. And we see some of the most brilliant uh, artistic pieces, whether it be film, uh, painting, sculpting, whatever, music, comes from pagans and heathens, so to speak. And you say, man, look, that's a reflection of God's glory, too. The, the recognition of beauty itself, I think, is a, is a reflection of the divine nature. And we can see it in that. Nevertheless, it's always marred because God's not the one getting the glory for it. And so when when the reflection is not toward the making much of God's name, then I think it's fundamentally at odds with the divine character and nature, no matter how beautiful it is. That's a good point. I think that's a point well taken that uh, though uh, I like the term marred, though that the image of God has been marred in humanity, um, it has not been obliterated. I think there are other passages that are beyond Genesis 1 after the fall, after Genesis 3, such as Genesis 9 and James 3 that, and other passages that Dr. Didaway references in his in this lesson that uh, that though it may have been marred by the fall, it is not obliterated at all. Of humanity still still bears that image, though, though it may be marred, it, it is still there, and we see it both in believers and, as Paul has pointed out, even even in unbelievers who can sometimes reflect the image of God through common grace. Paul, give us some other ideas about humanity, um, maybe what the Bible teaches. Uh, what about the preexistence of souls? Uh, that sometimes comes up. Yeah, that, that, is, that is a good one, and it's, it's been, that's also been pervasive throughout history. I want to make one comment uh, from the teaching plan for this week. You can find it at adults.journeyonleadership.com. This is in the PDF version, and it starts at the bottom of page 57. But here's the definition given for image bearers, and it's similar to what we just said. Sin is marred but not destroyed the image of God in us. We are wonderfully made but deeply fallen. We have great dignity but also great depravity. However, God did not wipe wipe us up and throw us away because of our sinful fallen nature. Instead, he sent his son to wipe our sins away with his sacrificial death on the cross. So even in light of our sin where our supreme value ought to have come from our full reflection of the Godhead, even in light of our sin, now our value comes from the redemption we get and God coming to chase us and bring us back as children of his. It's just a wonderful thing on both ends that you get there. But pre-existence of the souls, uh, that's been an idea at least since Plato, and I think he probably borrowed it from the Pythagoreans. Um, but um, Plato's idea was that we have two worlds. We have a world of forms where everything is perfect. It's immaterial out there somewhere. And then we have the world of the stuff we see um, here. So computers, tables, if you're driving right now, all the other cars on the road, etc., and so his question was, how do we know things as they really are if they're not truly, um, truly represented in the sense world? Well, he said, we remember. So we were all preexistent souls in that realm of the forms. And then we become human or we exist now in these physical bodies. And whatever true knowledge we have are memories of what those forms were. And then you look at Mormonism, for instance, um, and they have a similar view with the preexistence of the soul. So that we were all spirit brothers and sisters even before we came to this earth. Uh, not fully understanding the full doctrine of creation there. But the idea is we all were equal pre-existent souls. And then we're sent down in these bodies to be tested to try to live faithfully. And then we'll be restored to different levels of heaven. So at least from the 400s before Christ all the way up till today, you have this idea of a pre-existent soul prevalent in various systems. How is that different uh, or uh, the same as what the Bible teaches? Yeah, so in the beginning, God is, is just God, just purely the Godhead, not a, not a bunch of other of other things floating around with God. Um, everything's dependent on God, and God's dependent on nothing. And I think the Bible's witness is that Adam was formed out of the dust, and then the Spirit of God was breathed into him. 
um, it, it seems to be in a I mean, almost the next nihilo, I mean, we mentioned that uh, previous week, almost the next ex nihilo creation of the soul. And I, th- I think that's what's implied there is that there was nothing. This physical self was formed and then the spirit of God was breathed into it at that moment, not merely transitioned from some other preexistent immaterial soul state. And now that's transferred into this physical vessel. Uh, the idea of the biblical human is much more holistic than that where souls are intended for bodies and souls are created, I think, um, in the moment. They're not, they're not preexistent and just change locations. Okay. Any other thoughts, uh, just as, as life group leaders this week grasp with or grapple with the, uh, the nature of personhood, any other uh, ideas or philosophies that, that they should be aware of or, or think through or they may get asked about? Yeah, one question that might come up is whether it's a dichotomy or trichotomy. And what's meant by those words are, are we two parts, dichotomist, or are we three parts, trichotomist? Um, I, I doubt anyone will <laughs> ask you about the Unitarian approach, uh, that we're all just one thing. Uh, but we are holistic, and yet we have an immaterial part and a, and a physical part as well. Uh, the difference is that the physical part isn't bad, and that's what we want to defend against is that the physical is a good thing created by God uh, that was then fallen into sin and became decayed and so forth, so that now we long and wait for glorified bodies. But the soul is intended to be housed in a body. So we hear Paul talk about this, and he says it would be better to, um, of course he wants to be in the glorified state, but he said it would be better than to be out of this body and to be present with the Lord, because then at least I wouldn't be a sinner. But I would be in this sort of naked, weird state where I would just be a soul, and that was never the intent. Souls are intended for bodies. So I think in the very least, you need to be some kind of dualist where there's at least two parts. The question is, how does the spirit then relate to that? Are we uh, body, soul, and spirit, or are we just body and soul slash spirit, where they really mean the same thing? And I would say it's ambiguous in the text. Um, I think you get different lists with different words in it where we don't want to multiply parts. So I tend towards lesser parts than more parts. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, there's times where the spirit seems to be a distinct sort of thing. And what some people have done is gone on to say that, well, maybe the spirit is uh, whatever the soul does in its relationship to God. So that it's not an entity per se, but it's a kind of function or or a kind of relationship. However you do it, I think um, what you want to do is provide for your group members, uh, the idea that there that we ought to be dichotomist or trichotomist, but that there's some latitude in, in how we understand those things. Yeah, I would agree. And I think there is an emphasis, particularly from the Hebrew mindset, of, of holistic being unified. But, but I agree. I think, right. I think at the minimum, we, you know, it's obvious that, that there is something different about our, our bodily existence versus who we are on the inside, the immaterial part of this material versus the immaterial. And so... Um, Personally, I have not always found it as helpful, the, the, the trichotomist. Now, that's not to say that's heretical. Um, I know that there are some, some, some people who hold that view that, that uh, would have good arguments for that view. Um, where I have found it less helpful is when people try to get very specific about how each one of those three, particularly the distinctions between soul and spirit, how they operate in terms of our life and our living and our sanctification, our growth and I haven't always found those to be as helpful, but then again, that's just that's that's just my opinion. Yeah, and that and that's good. And what we want to guard from, and I'm glad you said the Hebrew mind uh, thinks in holistic. And what we're guarding against by saying think in terms of two parts 
is not flesh, material, bad, spiritual, soul, good. But what we're guarding against is something like soul sleep, which is a, a modern thing creeping into evangelicalism that is saying when you die, then there your body just lays entombed, decaying, or what have you, until the resurrection, corporate resurrection at the end of time. So if there's if you if we highlight the dualism, if we're clear on that, then clearly your soul wouldn't remain in that dead physical vessel that your soul would depart, as Paul says, to be present with the Lord. So you're right. We want to be as holistic as we possibly can be, and we want to guard against those other sort of things. All right. Is there anything you want to share before we go to some of our takeaways for this week? Yeah, uh, you mentioned uh, omniscience earlier and omnipresence earlier, and those are important doctrines. Omniscience, meaning all knowledge, scientia, knowledge. So uh, God knows everything. God knows all true things possible to know. And we want to say, I think the Bible reveals that that includes future truths. So we'd guard against something like open theism on that front. And the second is omnipresence is a weird one. And particularly in light of the incarnation from a few weeks ago, if Jesus truly is divine and omnipresence is a part of true divinity, then clearly Jesus the man had it and still has it uh, to this day. And so it's not difficult to see how an immaterial being could be omnipresent everywhere at once, but it's kind of tough to see how a physical being could do that sort of thing. So what uh, philosophers of theology have generally said is omnipresence means something like one's knowledge and power extend to all proximities throughout the universe, whether they be immaterial parts or material parts of the universe. And I think with something like that, um, it may reel in how we can relate the physical humanity of Christ to the omnipresence aspect. All right. So uh, as, as we wrap up here, let's, let's talk, what, what's at stake with, uh, with, with humanity? What's, what's at stake for the faith? Yeah. So let's walk through the two words we just defined and then talk about what we have done to this point. We have a God that knows the end from the beginning, who is determining the end from the beginning, and who knows all things about us, um, even knitting us together in the womb and ordaining us for purposes that we don't see yet. So if God's knowledge isn't of that sort, then I lose a lot of confidence as I think I'm called out to go do different things because God doesn't know what's going to happen. We're both just winging it. And then with respect to omnipresence, um, I think particularly we, we don't think about this one as much here in the in the U.S., but I think in certain places, and you think about Paul's witness being uh, imprisoned so frequently, shipwrecked, um, you think about the martyrdom that happens, and you say omnipresence is a big deal uh, for God being with me where I am. When, when it's comfortable, it's easy to see God being there, or at least convince yourself that God's there. But when it's uncomfortable, when there's persecution reigning, you say, is God in that moment too? Does God have power here? Is God aware of what I'm going through. Well, yes, certainly, and the the doctrine of omnipresence secures that for us. So we want to say that God both knows whatever situation you'll find yourself in, and God is fully aware and capable of handling whatever situation you find yourself in. Now, if that's the case, and he claims to love us, and he proves that in the resurrection, well, then now I can have boldness and confidence in who I am and the value I have as a person, that I'm not some random accident. I was made with a purpose for a purpose, and that God's power is working in and through all aspects of my life. And that's a different sort of identity than I'm just the sum of my pleasures or passions or I'm just some cosmic accident. All right. Great, great thoughts there. Um, and then we always want to, you know, this this series is called Transforming Truth. So we want to, 
certainly there's there's value in the cognitive. We need to know what we believe, why we believe it. Those those are very important things. But we also want to always ask the question: So what? You know what? What difference does this belief, this Christian belief about humanity, have in my life? You know what? What difference should it make? Any thoughts on that, Paul? Yeah, sure. And and I would love your input on this one too, with your years of ministry experience and all the pastoral uh, settings you've found yourself in. Uh, far outweigh anything that, that I've done. Uh, but we, we often hear Mike say, the world is beginning to, or at least facing up to, asking questions that only Jesus can answer. And I think the identity question is a big part of that. So when people are cast out of their community or society, or they feel like they don't fit in, or they fail at something, then um, oftentimes our self-esteem and identity can go up and down with those trends and with those realities based on what society says is successful for us or what I quote should be doing. But I think if we understand the biblical view of humanity, then our value is grounded in a God who doesn't change uh, the way he thinks about us or desires for us and who works in and through uh, us for great purposes and great glory. So my value and meaning and why I get up daily and live boldly daily is completely bound up in understanding myself as an image bearer of God, that that it, it wasn't some accidental random thing that um, it couldn't have been otherwise for me. God chose me in particular to be created. So now I can live each day as the, the temple of God and dwelt by the Spirit, making his name known to others, teaching them what kind of value they have because God loves them just as well. How do we know? Because Christ came and died. Uh, so, so everything, all my evangelism, my worship, my self-identity, and then how I live each of those out explicitly is grounded in who God says I am. Well said. I just We talked about earlier the, uh, the way society may talk about human life as just being accidental. And, and I say this for both life group leaders as well as the people that you shepherd that are in your life groups as well as the people that you will encounter in your uh, work and family and society is that uh, I want you to know because I need to know that we have great value that the biblical view the Christian view is that I as a human being and you as a human being have great value made in the image of God so we know the enemy often attacks that and, and may uh, the society tells us that we have value based on our beauty our income how functional we are how how we we you know show power, how we can uh, prove our value to others, but that is not the biblical view. The biblical view is that we have value in inherently because of being made in God's image, and and I think another implication of that is that you know that's not just believers, that's unbelievers, that's even people that we think may be very different than us, maybe. Um, Whoever you may see as being very different, whether that's a political difference, whether that's an ethnic difference, whether that's an economic difference, whether that's a racial difference, all those people that you think that are different than you are, that I may think that are different than I am, all of them carry the image of God. They have value, so they are not um, people we should disparage. Though we may disagree on things, we know that those are people made in God's image. They have value. We are called to love people, even people who may um, persecute us or not like us for maybe our stance on, on our Christian faith or following Jesus. That's that's immaterial. I think we are called, as Jesus instructs us, to love all, even our enemies. 
And so part of the reason for that is that they are made in God's image. Uh, Paul, why don't you bring it home and, and any final thoughts as we close out? Yeah, I think your last point is, is perhaps the most crucial point, is that the people, unbelievers, the unregenerate, are not enemies. Um, they're rebellion against God, certainly, but they're not our enemies as the church, as the body of Christ. Instead, they're people wandering around in the darkness, needing to be told who they are because God has made them to be something that they are not living according to. So it um, should just make the evangelistic enterprise all the more pressing because God made them to uh, Ezekiel, Timothy, Peter. God desires them to be saved. Um, God desires them to repent. And we're the ones that bring that message to them. And they are image bearers. Uh, I want to thank thank Roger again for being with us. It is exciting, and we'll have to do do this again at some point. Uh, we thank you, group leaders, for all that you do, for sticking with this theology. We know it's tough and deep thinking, but it's definitely going to bear fruit for your people because this develops the worldview when you start seeing Christ at work in every little aspect of your life. Having these doctrines as filters and a framework for understanding that is really one of the first steps in living a more holistic, pervasive Christian life. So we're thankful for all that you do. We're in regular prayer for you, and we wish you and your groups all the best.